here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Uh, yeah. And Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. An amazing affirmation right up the top. Uh, and we've already seen that. In the prologue, we had this proclamation of Jesus as the word of God. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. We've seen this affirmation from John the Baptist. Look, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is an immediate reference to his death, immediate reference to the Passover lamb, immediate re reference to the concept of a sacrifice in the Messiah, an idea that was foreign to Jewish thought until Christianity. And then we've got um, this one here with Nathaniel. Now, he's not, I mean, think about it. Ought this not be Peter? I mean, coming down from Caesarea Philippi, Peter recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Don't you think this ought to be Peter? Why, why is it Nathaniel? I mean, that doesn't make much sense to me. Maybe it ought to be the disciple whom Jesus loved, like John. Nathaniel? I mean, Nathaniel was not exactly a number one most important disciple. How many St. Nathaniels do you see? I, I've seen a few, but they're rare. This is interesting. If they were making this up, would they have made it up with Nathaniel? Remember I asked that question about the authors of the Gospels. And, you know, if they were making this stuff up, why would they choose Mark, John Mark, a kid during the life of Jesus? Why would they choose Luke, who was a companion of Paul and a physician who wasn't even there? And Matthew, a tax collector, older fella. I mean, come on. A, a, a collaborator with the Roman authorities, no less. I mean, three guys that you would not expect them to choose if they're making this stuff up. In terms of historical credibility, it, it seems to me more likely than not that we have some pretty good identifications there. Something similar going on here. Nathaniel is the one. What did the fig tree have to do? I'm missing the significance. Jesus has the ability to see things that most people can't see. Here's Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree before he's called. Jesus sees him, knows him, has a miraculous insight and ability to know ahead of time about him. I thought he was saying he's got really good eyes or something. Would something that be something to base your faith on? Exactly. We're coming We're to that. <laughs> when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said to him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know that? The spiritual insight. Remember, this is the Word of God, the Lamb of God, the Christ, the Messiah. All right? All of these things, these titles have already been granted in John. And here he has this spiritual insight. Here is, here is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel asked him, where did you get to know me? I mean, that's a logical question. How do you know I don't have any deceit? I mean, Nathaniel asked the question I'd ask. How the heck do you know that? And Nathaniel asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. I mean, how is he... Exactly. I don't think it has anything to do with eyesight. I think it has to do with inner sight. 
Jesus somehow knows this about Nathaniel, knows something special about him, has been watching. He's kind of like Santa Claus. He sees, sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's this spiritual insight here that seems to be in play. This is, Jesus is being depicted already as being beyond normal. Abby normal. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just beyond the everyday common. Jesus has been already proclaimed as the Word of God, who is God, who's become flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, Nathaniel proclaims the Son of God. The King of Israel. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, which is a Davidic proclamation, which is connected to the Messiahship. You know, um, the one word that strikes me is when he said, who, you are a true Israelite, there is nothing false. That speaks to me that while he was under the fig tree, that was probably the topic of his thoughts. Could be. And for Jesus to come right out and say that, it must have spoke some code that only he and Nathaniel would know. Well, I mean, there's no, nothing false in you. There's no guile. There's no deceit in you. And then he turns around and says, you are the son of God. You're the king, you know, King mm, David. That's the code she was talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, well, not that code. Well, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah but when Jesus between. said to him, there's nothing false about you. Under that fig tree, he must have been thinking about something that had to do with that. Could be. And that here comes a stranger out of the blue who goes, by the way, what you were thinking of the fig tree, don't worry about it. I got you covered. <laughs> I got you covered. And then it's almost like a, a pre-affirmation of what Nathaniel's going to say. There's no, there, there's no deceit in you. There's no guile in you. What you say is true. And what you're going to say is true about me. I still think it's fascinating that it's Nathaniel. Nathaniel, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are the new David. And to do that simply because Jesus says, A, you're an Israelite who has no deceit, and B, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Wow. Does that call forth faith? Like that? That's ESP. <laughs> they just didn't have it named yet. Paranormal. Just as we cannot yeah. comprehend these affirmations from John, for instance, John the Baptist. So also, we really can't, I mean, we see these visions that he got to see. But how does the, 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 the dove communicate to him that this is the Lamb of God? And all of that entails in Jewish thought. It, it doesn't really. Same thing here, even more nebulously. Jesus knows something about this Nathaniel. And, and then you've got this affirmation of him. Now, now just 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 before we get hung up in this. I think it's important to remember that John 
practices this kind of front-loading of affirmations. Whereas the synoptic gospels string you along and build their case for the affirmations until you get to it and then bang out, you, they have it. I mean, it's, uh, Matthew and Luke start with these affirmations from angels, the kind of people you expect to hear this stuff from, God's messengers. But for human beings, it just sort of meanders its way through the storyline, building the evidence until, bango, you can make your affirmations about who this Jesus is. Having seen him, you know, exorcise demons and heal people and preach good word and do all the other miraculous things that he does, it makes sense to affirm him later. But John front loads it so that the reader knows what they're going to see. Remember, John is an interpretive. Um, one of the early church fathers, one of the first bishops, Clement, said that, that John is a spiritual gospel interpreting who Jesus is. And, and, and that was way back in the first century. And he was right, late first 90s, right after this was written. And he's right. Clement was right. This is a spiritual interpretation. Hence, the affirmations being front-loaded should not surprise us. And, and not just these interpretations are uploaded, but even the, the seminal event, as we will see after the changing of the water and the wine, the seminal event that in the synoptics bring about Jesus' arrest conviction and crucifixion is also front-loaded in John. The cleansing of the temple. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a pushover you are, Nathaniel. You will see greater things than these. You ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, you're easy to impress, Nathaniel. You're easy to impress. You ain't seen nothing yet. Especially since he evidently has a poor opinion of people out of Nazareth. Who, <laughs> <laughs> Nathaniel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah nothing good comes out of Nazareth. <laughs> and Jesus heard that. You're the son of God. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. What a juxtaposition. <laughs> Nothing good can come out of Nazareth, too. You're the Son of God. Talk about a 180-degree turnaround. Wow, Nathaniel. You're a pushover. You ain't seen nothing yet. Wow, this is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You've been excited about this. What are you going to do when you see that? <laughs> on the third day. On the third day? On the third day from what? Well, some scholars think on the third day from the uh, non-existent baptism. <laughs> Other scholars say it's on the third day from the calling of Nathaniel. Some others say it's on the third day of the week. Maybe the third day of the week. In the Jewish tradition, um, do, what, what are the names of the weeks? 
Well, they each have a day, but uh, and they usually use the day name. But the third day of the week would be what day? Monday. Third day of the week. Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, they don't start. First day is Sunday. Second day is Monday. Third day is Tuesday. And it would start with Sunday on Tuesday, uh, Monday night and run to Sunday on Tuesday night. That's also the same as us. First day of the week is Sunday. So they have seven days in the calendar? Yeah, seven-day week. These it's the Sabbath day being the last day of the week and Sunday being the first day of the week. And we do the same thing. The Europeans screw it up. They put the week ends at the very far end and start it with Monday. The European way of telling time, the third day of the week is Wednesday. But, but for us and for the Jews, Monday is the second day of the week. So Wednesday, Tuesday would be the third day. They're talking about the wedding. They're thinking that it might be related to the wedding. Third day of the wedding. Is the the third wedding day of the wedding, wedding feast. Right, exactly. It, that's the other, in one of the other of several interpretations is that actually it's a, the third day of the, of the seven-day wedding feast. There you go. And then quickly as we don't really know how long, what they did in the Holy Land in the first century for weddings. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, firstly, that, that, John never names Mary. He's the mother. She's the mother of Jesus. John names Joseph but does not name Mary. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Not quite. Actually, the opposite. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern of that is to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, right there we have one of the earliest of what is known as Semitic Phrases. This is a Greek translation of a Semitic phrase, or an Aramaic phrase, actually, which was common usage in that day and for quite a while before and quite a while afterwards. And it's kind of like saying, um, okay, so what? It's kind of what it means. Okay, so what? What is this to you and to me, literally? Uh, yeah, and? There are other ways of saying it. Uh, okay. Or, uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's, it's not supposed to be a sarcastic response. It's more of, that's not my responsibility. I'm not in charge. Why are you looking to me? Kind of, do you think I'm the miracle winemaker kind of, kind of bit? Um, notice the statement is a statement. They have no wine. It's not, Jesus, they run out of wine, make some. It's a statement, a declaratory statement. They have no wine. Or the wine has given out. Or they've run out of wine, quite literally. 
they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Or, uh, okay, uh, my hour has not yet come. Possible other renderings of that based on textual variants include, uh, has my hour come yet? And possibly, my hour has now come as a declaratory statement. But the majority and actually the oldest readings seem to say that it ought to read, my hour has not yet come as a basic statement in the negative. Then his mother, ignoring what he says, <laughs> says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there seems to be an awful lot missing here because it starts with her saying, they're out of wine. And Jesus saying, uh, yeah, so my hour's not here yet. It's not time for me to start. And then she ignores him and turns to them and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Well, Mom, I haven't said I'm going to do anything. But apparently something else is going on or something else that we don't quite know is in play here. I had a cultural question. Yes? Um, if she is a guest of the wedding mm -hmm. um, and being female, mm -hmm. would she have the authority to order the servants? Sure. If she is a guest at the wedding and possibly if she is a relative That's of saying. the bride, possibly, or the bridegroom, possibly. Which would be the reason why she would say that. And they're, from, they're in Cana, which is next door across a mountainside, a hillside, from Nazareth. So the chances that she would be in some way related to people in Cana who are having this wedding and the reason why she's there and Jesus is invited, it, it makes sense. And their speculation is, is that this is in fact a wedding, possibly even for one of Jesus' disciples or someone who would become a disciple of Jesus, and the speculation is, is that it's John himself. Well, that would be fascinating. And there's an old church tradition going back into the third century, which says that this was actually John's own wedding, and that Jesus and John were related because Mary had a sister who's supposedly uh, related to I mean, Mary's sister is the mother of the uh, bride, or the, of the uh, yeah, the bride here. This sounds like a family reunion. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, as a woman. It would give her her standing to make the statement. I didn't think women had a standing in back then. They were more chattel. They're chattel, but in the in the affairs of the home operation, the fixing of the food, okay. the preparing of the wine, they have responsibility. But if she was invited, she would be socializing. So that's why I'm thinking she is part of. It's part of the, the family. Part of the family. Part of the family. She has the authority to tell the servants to do this because she is the aunt of the bride, is one of the theories, or an aunt of the groom is another theory. No one knows. This doesn't tell us. We have no way of knowing it otherwise. It's simple speculation based on third century authors who have speculated about this issue repeatedly. We do not know And this what seems to indicate that she has some knowledge of, of his abilities. Yeah, it does. You know, if you read some of the non-canical scrolls, 
stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he evidently was, there are ones out there like the Gospel of Thomas or and things like that where he killed people, a couple of kids. Oh, the infancy got the, 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 the uh, Protoevangelium of James and yeah. the, where he, he makes little clay pigeons out of it and then he wraps his hands and they on come to Sunday, life and fly yeah. off. And it's the Sabbath day and the, some kid says, you worked on the Sabbath day and Jesus strikes him dead like Damien in the Omen. And then, <laughs> and then he gets in trouble and, and, and so the, the boy's dad comes to Joseph and complains about it that his son had murdered his son and Jesus raises the boy from the dead and said, did I murder you? And the kid says, no, and then <laughs> I mean it's best it's, it's 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 really ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Yes. But it it's based on that question of what did Jesus do as the kid? I mean, how do you spank the Son of God? I mean, <laughs> these are the kinds of questions that I'm sure. And if he's supposed to be sin free. Uh, yeah. Well, he certainly doesn't sound like that in the Proto Evangelium of James yeah. or the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. But but it does those those works do kind of present that question. Of course, you know, in Luke, Mary has received this affirmation of who Jesus is going to be, and it says in Luke that he, uh, she, she considered these things and pondered them in, the, in her heart. Well, that's Luke, and, and as we've already seen a little bit, there may be some instances where John is aware of Luke, although he doesn't name the mother here, but she has a prominent role which is interesting. In fact, that is something else. In John's gospel, Mary has a significant role here and especially at the end, at the cross, Jesus dying and she's right there. Maybe he wants you to be fully aware of who this woman is and keep her significance as his mother and not uh-huh. give her the the, of being a person of her own. She is Jesus' mother, that's it, that's all. That's her job, that's her to be Jesus' yeah. mother. And it's interesting that, that she is listed and she's identified as such. Even the next chapter after the first chapter starting with Jesus being the Word of God who becomes flesh. I mean, wow. Wow. That, I mean, it, Luke's gospel is pretty exciting and, and fanciful and incredible with the Mary, with the angel coming to Mary and Mary receiving, you know, the Annunciation and Mary going off and seeing uh, her her cousin Elizabeth and then Mary actually giving birth and with the shepherds and all that stuff and the angels and singing and all that all that bit. Um, I mean, it's an impressive thing. And she said, it says that she ponders these things in her heart. Wow, that's incredible. Um, and then you know you've got the You've also got the uh, go, him going off to the temple uh, at a twelve-year-old boy and, and sitting amongst the, the 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 rabbis and the priests there in the temple there in Luke's gospel. I mean, all that stuff is present in Luke's gospel, sort of a preamble to this kind of thing. And yet, you don't find that in John. You find that over in Luke, where Mary is an important person at the beginning and then kind of drops out. Whereas in John, just where Mary kind of drops out. John picks her up. That's fascinating. There are many reasons why scholars have said that John, the author of John, somebody in the process, knew, had read, was familiar with Luke. Not that he's going to quote Luke, but he's familiar with Luke and the way Luke presents the story. 
And that's one of the reasons why. We've seen a couple of versions of that, some examples of that. Here we have another one, Mary. Not named, but identified as the mother of Jesus who has a pretty, pretty prominent role here and at the end especially. Why wouldn't you name her if you named Nathaniel? Or why would you not name her if you're going to name Joseph, which you do? Exactly. Which he does. Yeah. Because her sole purpose is to be Jesus' mother. Her sole purpose is to do the job of being mom. She doesn't name. Well, did Jesus call her Mary, or did he call her woman or mom? Woman in this case. (laughs) Yes, right. Woman. Confusion we have with Simon Simon Peter, Peter of Tiberius. Then yeah, then we have a bunch of other. You've got all of these different names. Yeah. You got all. They got the several Marys. You got Judas's. That's right. You've got the several Marys. You've got the couple of Simons. You've got. I mean, yeah, it, it can get confusing, and so you got a couple of Jameses, three Jameses actually. So I mean, yeah, it can get confusing, but they they solve that one by just saying, "Hey, it's mom." Uh, okay, let's keep going. Uh, his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jar, water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are big jars. And they're utilized in the wedding purification rituals. Uh, bathing, hand and feet washing rituals at the weddings at that time. Some of these rituals are identified in Leviticus and some of these rituals are identified and and outlined in Mishnah and you just kind of have to go look at what they told you're supposed to do and you needed water for that. You didn't need this much water unless it was a great big group. Okay, well they're empty. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine, But the get, after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now, hiccup. <laughs> I, can, I can just, yeah, I, I, I can hear, uh, Oh, who was the comedian who was always drunk? Um, Buster Brooks. Uh, well, that's one of them. Yeah. I, I was thinking. Skelton. Yeah. Um, oh. Are you talking about more modern? Like uh, Dean modern? Martin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was for real, though. Yeah. Um, Shelley Berman. <laughs> he was he was drunk too. But you have kept the good wine until now. It's kind of like that. I mean, here's this guy. He's had a lot to drink. It's been a big wedding feast, and. He's not. He's feeling no pain, and they bring him the wine, and he can identify that this is superior wine. This is superior wine. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the only sign 
that is not found in the other Gospels. This is the sign that is not in the other Gospels. There, there are three miracles that are signs in the other Gospels. Let's see. Yeah, there are three miracles, of, and there are three other events that are signs in the other Gospels. This is the only sign in John that is unique to John. That's fascinating. What does it mean? I mean, here, I mean, is it just because Jesus, Jesus liked to party, and so he changed the water and the wine to keep the party going? I mean, is, is, is that? All his disciples were there. Is that that water and wine and communion thing? Trying to come together here? Being preempted once again? Okay, there, okay, the interpretation throughout the history of the church has been that this is one, an, a front-loading of part of communion with the wine portion being present here. This idea that Jesus provides the very best and provides the very best from a, uh, a common source, water. Well, in communion, the wine provides the very best of Jesus' presence from what is a, a common, in a sense, source, wine. And so that's, you know, that's one interpretation that has reigned through, um, throughout the church, that this is a foreshadowing of the wine portion of communion. Another, another concept is we talk about, uh, this is, since these were the jars used with water for Jewish rites of purification, one rite of purification was baptism, which the church adopted, and that was done with water, well, we talk as Christians about baptism into Jesus' blood, into his death. Well, in communion, the wine, Jesus proclaims is his blood. So you see the interconnections there. They exist. They're there uh, in, in a sense. But, but that's interpretive by the church on the event. Jesus gives us better than the best we have on earth. Even when we're so drunk on the beautiful things that were created in this world that we overdo, <laughs> we and we can the the goodness and uh, and and perfection of this wine comes through the drunk taste buds and through the drunk heads of these wedding guests. And they know it is better than they've ever tasted in their lives. And they've tasted a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Copious amounts. And they thought they were getting the best to start with. Right. And now they're getting the very best. And, and you know what? Better. And they were right. The, the world does give us beautiful, incredible, the best. And we, if you're in the right time, right place, and you're making enough money, you can have the best. <laughs> It's all but it's still not as good best. as what, right. what Christ has done. And I think that's the essence. You know, we can consume of what the world has to provide in celebrations. But without Jesus in the midst of it, it's... It's nothing. It's Thunderbird wine. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not... It's not... MD it's, 2020. It's, it's not supreme quality, which is what Jesus provides which is what Jesus provides. And I think that's part of the idea here. And Greg, you had mentioned in your last 
certainly last Sunday, C.S. Lewis, I know in some of his writings, he talks about Jesus' miracles. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says that Jesus, as God, just takes the natural order and kind of speeds things up. You know, yeah. You like the, you know, think about the turning water into wine. You know, think about the feast of the, you know, by the lake there where the people brought bread out from nowhere, quote unquote. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so he just, he just puts it hyper speed, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Show that he is God. That he is God. Yes, indeed. I I think that um, it points out uh, one one point that we haven't made is that of course this is Jesus's affirmation of of marriage, which the church has also recognized for a very long time. He's present at the feast. He he makes wine for the feast. Uh, so it's his affirmation of it. I mean, you could you could make that argument as well. It's fascinating now that this becomes the, the first one, the first miracle that starts off Jesus' ministry. He's already collected a few disciples along the way, but this is really what inaugurates it. From this point on, now he is in ministry. After this, verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. Capernaum, or Capernaum, however you want to pronounce it, is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of down in a bowl. And that's literally, if you want to think about it, that is going down from Cana to get to it. It really, really is kind of going down to get to it. But um, so they go down to Capernaum with his mother his brothers and his disciples and they remain there a few days interesting his brothers are mentioned there now suddenly we jump to the Passover the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and that also is appropriate because while Jerusalem is south it's certainly up theologically from Galilee, and it's also up altitude-wise. Jerusalem's in the mountains, at the top of the mountains. Okay. And you go, so to go to Jerusalem, you would go downstream, down the Jordan River, and then up into the hills, west, up into the mountains, west. And that would take you to Jerusalem. It is quite a haul. That's not a short trip. Where's the Mount of Olives? Is this the mountain? Mount of Olives is, is on the west side of, it's on the east side of the Kidron Valley facing Jerusalem. That's where the Mount of Olives is. So it's in between, basically. Huh? It's in between Jerusalem and where in the... Yeah, but it's right, it's really close in confined space. It's, it's really close in. I mean, the Kidron Valley is really, really, really shallow. It's not deep. That's something you're going to see when you're in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Look up and see. Yeah, you, it's, it's just right there. You can't miss it. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. Uh oh, they were having a yard sale. Um, they were having in the, in the temple. And the and cattle, not, cattle, sheep, and doves. Can you, can you imagine the poop involved with that? Both land and aerial based? Ooh. 
and money changers sat seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, remember? Front-loading. John front-loads the whole story. First of all, the people who are hearing this read or who are reading this, they know the story. It's not a surprise. Jesus dies? They don't, it's not a surprise. He was raised, not a surprise. Everything's front-loaded. The whole story is front-loaded. Notice. Notice something very, very fascinating. In the story in John, we have Jesus saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't say that in the, in the cleansing of the temple. But in Mark's gospel, one of the charges against him is that that was what he was going to do. If you take a look at Mark chapter 14, I might want to put a thumb or a finger there. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse uh, 15. 57 Mark 14 beginning at verse 57 some stood up and gave false testimony against him saying verse 58 we heard him say I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands Now, in Mark's Gospel's account of the cleansing of the temple, that doesn't come, that he doesn't say that. But in the charges made against Jesus, he is quoted as saying that. Over in John's version of the cleansing of the temple, we find it being said by Jesus. That's fascinating. It's also an, a sign that there's, well, one step beyond. In Greek especially, but it's also evident in most English translations, the wording is sufficiently different to not be a copy out of the synoptics. In other words, John didn't get this by taking 
the, the story and taking the account from Mark and copying it down. For one thing, that proclamation isn't there. It's found in the charges against Jesus in Mark, but not in what Jesus says in Mark. In John, it's found in what Jesus says in the temple, as he was accused in Mark's Gospel of saying. But the wording and the structure of the wording and the word choice is different. For instance, in John, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Any other translation there? Is it read any differently in any other translation? Verse 19, John chapter 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Raise that word. Raise it again. Raise it again. Yeah, raise it again. Raise it up. Raise it again. Raise it up. Raise it up. That's an exact transliteration of the Greek word used here. Whereas over in Mark's gospel, the charge he has said, it is it's it's a little more long-winded, and it says. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Build another not not made with hands. The wording here is the word choice, the word order, the construction is very different. In Greek, the the statement is um, uh, raise, agero, raise it. Whereas in Mark, it is, I will build, yeah. which is uh, domeso. You get domicile from it. <laughs> we will build it again. What are you looking for? You're getting lost. Mark 14, verse 58, as opposed to John 2, verse 19. The word structure, the order, is different. The word choices are different. Raise it as opposed to build it again. Enough so that what we have here is not literarily dependent on Mark. Or Luke, which we know that John knew. Or Matthew. Instead, what we have is an independent recounting of the words of Jesus. Especially since Mark doesn't include those words in, the, in, the, in his cleansing of the temple, but instead are words used against him in his trial. There are historians who have looked at this and said this is an indicator that the wording of Jesus' cleansing of the temple in John's gospel is historically accurate. Or certainly more so than maybe Peter's remembering of it that got written down by Mark. Let me say that again. Mark gives an account of the cleansing of the temple that doesn't include Jesus saying, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. <coughs> the charges against him in Mark are that he said that. That it you know, was built with hands, I will rebuild it without hands. All right, That's what he's charged with saying in Mark. In John's Gospel, when he cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry, he is depicted as saying exactly or similar to what he's charged with in Mark's gospel. Isn't that interesting? He's not saying, I will destroy it in John. He is saying, literally, 
in John's gospel. They asked him for a sign. He said, well, destroy it. Answered, it. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he's not indicating that he would destroy it. Right. He said the temple would, could be destroyed, and yeah, I will you can raise do it, it in three I'll, days. I'll raise it up again. Yes, and you can see how that could be heard by someone as saying he's going to destroy yeah. the temple. Especially if you got it at end for him. Yeah, you're looking for something yeah, to use against him. It's amazing how we can bend. Mm -hmm. And that's the point. We have in John, which is not supposed to be considered, many people say, oh, it can't have any historical basis in fact in it. After all, it was written a whole lot later and has nothing, it's not like the, the uh, synoptics. Well, there are lots of similarities. We'll look at those a little later. But here's an example of an internal historical evidence that John may actually have access to what was said in the temple, which we now hear about from people who were there and they're bringing up charges against Jesus and twisting it to make him look like the bad guy. Yeah, but when Mark says they twisted it, he said they couldn't even agree on their stories. Right, no. the next sentence. Uh-huh, exactly. That's, that's, that's also down. part of the point. If you look at the account in Mark's gospel, he doesn't say, I'll destroy the temple. Let's look at the account in Mark's gospel. I got it. 12, I mean 11, 12. Well, actually 11, 14. Mm-hmm. Um... 15, you overturn the time. Yeah, 15, 11, 15. Yeah, they, uh, then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, it is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Read the next sentence. Though. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. Could this be a place where that little sentence there was left out that John puts in? Could That's... be. Or it, it, this... You see, this is the reason why they killed him. This is what's, you know, this, this is the linchpin. This is what does it. And, and he doesn't seem to say it in Mark. So that when you get over to the charges that are made, it's possible for Mark to write, for they gave false testimony against him and and their testimony did not agree. Some stood and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another one made not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. I mean, clearly, Mark is a getting a, giving an account here. Part of the evidence that they decided to possibly fabricate against Jesus included this statement that he said he was going to destroy it and build it again. So John is... John giving the same story, essentially, destroy, uh, cleansing the temple, is giving Jesus the words similar to, but with different construction, different word choice, different word order and grammar, and not I will destroy, but it can be destroyed if you destroy this temple. 
in three days I will raise it again. And the speculation is that what we have in John is actually what was said. Well, the other thing that I noticed in reading some of this about is uh, in, in Mark, so that this is the only time he goes to the Passover. And this is at the end of his yeah. ministry. one Passover in Mark. Where this is early in his ministry. Three Passovers. Yeah. Three, pa three, possibly three Passovers in John. That's implied. This so, is number one. So the timing is a little bit different yeah. Mark. Wow. Significantly yeah. different. In John's, the cleansing of the temple front loads his ministry. His ministry begins with the Passover, essentially. Yeah. Whereas in, uh, in, in Mark, the Passover, and in Matthew and in Luke, the, it's the Passover that ends his ministry. Yeah. Last Supper kind of thing. Right? So that's, yeah, that's, that's another major difference. That's kind of huge. Well, yes, it is. Placing, I mean, there are various arguments. Some people argue that John's placing the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry is authentic. Others make the claim that, John, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke placing the cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry is authentic. And then there are some who say he cleansed the temple twice <laughs> to harmonize the three, the four of them gotcha. together. Well, I don't believe he cleansed the temple twice. I actually happen to believe that historically speaking, he cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry, and that was what sort of sparked his Absolutely. execution. Absolutely, wouldn't have much time left. It was what sparked his arrest and his execution. Yeah. And that what he said when he did it gave some people the idea or the thought that he said he would destroy it, which is what, what sparked and gave it the fire besides their hatred of the man. So all of that was a factor involved. So what John preserves is not the location at the beginning of his ministry is accurate, but what he says when he's in the temple tends to, be a little, tends to have some degree of historical accuracy. That's an interesting observation. It runs contrary to what you expect. But the fact that Mark doesn't contain the quote in the cleansing of the temple, but does contain it in the charges against him, whereas John contains it in the cleansing of the temple, is, is amazing historically. Historically, but going back to what, and the whole purpose of reading the different versions mm -hmm. in the previous Bible study, yeah. Uh, they were writing for different sure they were. Uh, audiences. So, yes, you're going to have that but um bump from Luke mm -hmm. because they didn't know the story and he had to prepare the people for it. Otherwise, if he had front-loaded it like this, they would go, oh, my God. Yeah. What are you telling us? John is written for people who are very familiar with the story. So are, so are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they can also be used as evangelistic tools. Mm -hmm. Whereas John can't be. It's used to tell the story to people who know it, who are looking to understand it. That's a very important piece of this. Hence, the front-loading of all this stuff. Yeah, you'd be ruining the book for the other people. It's like reading the conclusion after, at the beginning before you go back and read chapter one. one. <laughs> I know some people who read the last chapter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They run it. Well, that's kind of what John does. He, he front loads all this material, and including the destruction, the, the, the destruction, the cleansing of the temple. And he uses that language, which ironically is what Mar in Mark they charge him with, more or less. But it's written in such a way that there's no literary dependence, which is what I was trying to point out. The word choice 
the word order, all of that indicates that it's independently derived from the oral tradition. <laughs> and probably, and probably independently derived from Aramaic, which means that what we're getting here is one of those anecdotes that while it is parallel to what we have in the synoptics, comes to us from a different source. There are a lot of these. There are a lot of parallelisms between Matthew, Mark, and Luke on one hand and John on the other. And most of them contain these kinds of independent <coughs> characteristics which show us that the sourcing is not from the synoptics even if the author is familiar with Luke. He's not sitting there copying Luke. He's familiar with it, but he knows these stories from other sources. That's a, that's a fascinating indicator too, which is another one of the many reasons why even some high power critical scholars today say that there is a layer in John, an early layer of John's gospel that goes back to a disciple. Now it's been filtered, it's been edited, it's been rewritten, it's been given an order and sequence, but that there's a layer of these stories about Jesus that, that come back, go back right back to the beginning. So they think originally it was written in Aramaic, John. John was written in Greek as early as we can identify, but the sourcing of the stories would have been in Aramaic that are behind it. So by the time it gets written down, it's in Greek. But it's close to the Aramaic because there are lots of Semitic turns of phrase, lots of Semitic terms, lots of Aramaic place names, lots of stuff that seems to come directly from the Aramaic usage or the Hebrew usage. So there, and the Semitic terms of phrase seem to also indicate that this is closer to the origination in many places. So even though they've edited it, even though it's been translated into Greek, probably before it was written down, these Semitic turns of phrase have survived. And you see that a little bit in Mark. And you don't see it at all in Matthew and Luke, really. A little bit in Matthew, but much more so in Mark than in any of the others. And then in John, you have these Semitic turns of phrase, which is fascinating. You know, for, for John to be so far removed in time, yeah. being written in the 90s as opposed to the 70s or early 80s, or even late 60s for Mark, and here we got this written in the 90s, and yet it seems to have preserved an accounts or some anecdotal accounts and some Semitic types of idiom that uh, go back to the original times. It sounds like there is some writing in there. Well, there may very well be. That's what it sounds like. There that, may, that's too much. There may very well have been there. some Aramaic writing of, of some of these stories before. In fact, there was because the earliest, remember, the earliest generation of Q yeah. was written in Aramaic before it was Q. translated into Greek before Paul got his hands on it and before Mar, uh, Matthew and Luke got their hands on it. So, yeah. It was originally written in, in, in Aramaic, and then it was translated and expanded upon and circulated in Greek. That much is clear. So yeah, if we could find that, that'd be great. Cute. Yeah, we need a little piece of cute. I'd love to have that. <laughs>
Any questions? Any questions? Let's recover the very end of it again. Uh, uh, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now remember the front-loading concept? The temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, clearly there are things he's doing that we're not seeing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone. For he himself knew what was in everyone. Remember what we talked about with regards to Nathaniel? Here it comes right out and says it. Jesus is omniscient, which is a characteristic of God. Yeah. I mean, come on, think about it for just a minute here. Look what it says. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. That's a statement of omniscience. I mean, one of those doctrinal points of the identity of God is yeah. God is omniscient and omnipotent. Yeah. Well, here we got that applied to Jesus. Well, he is the word of God. Who is God who becomes flesh? And yet it says that Jesus, walking around in Jerusalem, he doesn't need to entrust himself to any of them. He knows them all already, just like he knew Nathaniel already. That's, that's fascinating. Again, all of this stuff is a front-loading, a theological interpretation and front-loading. Questions? I, you, know, you just wonder why we get a, a sign as simple as making wine and the limited audience that was here, and then talks about being in Jerusalem during the Passover, and many believe because of signs he did, and we have no idea what signs he. We've got now the limited audience here. It says his disciples. He revealed his glory to the disciples. So maybe yes. this was mainly just for the disciples, not the wedding guests. Well, that would be my reading of it. That the, it was for the disciples, maybe for his mom, that that this was important for. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So he, that's who he was trying to reach here. Yeah. But it seems like many more came to believe in him here, but we have no idea uh -uh. what he did to The, the details are himself. missing. Mm -hmm. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name. That's it. Believed in his name. Now, that's not talking Jesus' name. Yes, sure. No, the name Jesus. Yes, sure. Because that was a common name. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Yeshua, Joshua, means Yahweh delivers or Yahweh saves. That's the meaning of the name. And... Um, and that's generally how that's understood. That, I thought it might be one of the other titles they applied to him. Well, in a sense, his name is a title. Yeah. 
Just like Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. So also, so also Yeshua means Yahweh delivers or Yahweh saves. And that's what he's been sent to do. And hence, it says here that many believed in his name, that i.e., many believed that Yahweh saves because they saw the signs that he was doing. That, that's one way you could read that, interpret that. Um, the meaning of the name Yeshua would not be foreign at this point still. Although they don't actually say that, this concept of believing in the name is a really... Um, it's one of those Semiticisms, Semitic characteristics or phrase, a turn of phrase that is very Semitic in nature, very Aramaic in nature. To believe in the name means you believe that which the name identifies or that which the name signifies. Since to believe in the name of the Lord, which is a very Semitic phrase, to believe in the name of, of Yahweh Elohim is, is, no, they wouldn't have said Yahweh Elohim, they would have said Adonai Elohim, is to believe what that name proclaims. In the sense of Yahweh, Yahweh means um, the one who is and who cannot not be, the one who is known and, and, and exists and, and cannot not be thought of as not existing. I am. been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.